Here we go. All right. Oh, it did? Good. I like it. That notification works good. That's why, we, that's why we have to use that system. That's the best one. All right. Book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Or Romans 9, I should say. I'm so used to saying Romans 8. Because we've been there for 500 years. Okay. Romans chapter 9. All right. And I'm looking at Isaiah, so that's not going to help us really a lot. All right. Romans chapter 9. Everybody ready? We're going to do a quick review and then move forward. All right. We're in Romans chapter 9. And we have discussed Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. What's the possible issue with 9, 10, and 11? They seem out of place. Nobody knows why they're there. So some argue that really you could go from 8 to 12, make perfect sense, and you wouldn't miss anything in 9, 10, 11. And why does everyone seem so, con- or when I say everyone, a lot of people throughout church history have been somewhat perplexed by 9, 10, 11. Why is that? Because 9, 10, 11 mentions Israel over and over and over and over again, and like, where in the world is this discussion with Israel coming from? Because we just spent last, the last chapter in chapter 8 talking about what? Election, predestination, calling. So why in the world are we jumping to Israel? It seems a little bit out of place. So what we have decided to do is try to figure out, one, why Paul is spending time looking at Israel. I've offered some suggestions why I think that is. But we know that as soon as you start talking about Israel, what happens within Christianity the minute you say Israel? Immediately you get disagreement. Which is kind of frustrating that we can't agree over a word, but that's the way Christianity has little. Do we have to go back to homo eusios and homo ousios, right? But yeah, we've been debating about words forever. Okay, so the the issue here is um, we have to then figure out what in the world we do with this. So what what are the different camps when it comes to Israel? Let's go through them again. We've talked about this now a hundred times. Okay, when we read Israel, we're speaking of physical Israel and actual nation, all right? Or spiritual Israel, which basically means the church. So what some people say is when you see Israel, just ignore Israel and put the church there. And then, except for what? Any of the curses, that doesn't go to the church. That goes with the nation. Any of the blessings or promises go to the church. However... We don't get the actual literal promise. We get the spiritualized version of the promise. Okay, so that this is what happens over and 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 over again. It's never ending and it's maddening. So we've dealt with this in the past. Yes. So what did we do to try to answer this problem in the past? We we didn't bother with commentaries. Right? We just like, let's look up the word Israel. And we looked up every single reference, taking us months, and we discovered that uh, in 99.9%, other than maybe two cases, possibly two, Israel means Israel. Right? Uh, and we went through every single one. And anyone who's ever argued has not come back with our list showing us how we got all 99.9% wrong. Because, I mean, most, and some of there was just, there was not even any other way to interpret it. Like, trying to interpret, well, I've, I've told everyone, look at Matthew Henry, right? And you read Matthew Henry. It, it's literally, it makes no sense. I had Lydia reading Matthew Henry when we were doing it. I'm like, what is Matthew Henry? It's the church. It's the church. And did he ever offer an explanation of how? Just makes a dogmatic assertion, it's the church. And even if you try to say that the New Testament refers to Israel as the church, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament was. Okay, That makes absolutely no sense there. So we've looked at it. And, the re- and so now what do we have to do? Well, we have to, in a sense, kind of go back and look at this. And here's the reason why. Because here's the verse that everyone jumps on and goes crazy with. Right? Here's the one where everybody goes crazy. So let's read uh, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now when Paul is referring to his kinsmen according to the flesh, who is he referring to? Who are Israelites? 
To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and of the promises. Clearly, he's referring to national Israel. There's no way uh, how you can read. Look, put this way. If we can't figure that out, I'm just going to I'm going to be blunt. We just need to give we just give up Christianity. If we can't figure that much out, then Christianity is literally don't even tell me about perspicuity of the scripture. The Bible is absolutely impossible to interpret. I mean, that, I mean, how can you not figure that out? All right, and then what does he say? Who are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken None effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And that's where everybody's like, see, I got it. I got it. There we go. That's it. That's it. That's it. Israel's not all Israel. I've done it. I've done it. With ignoring everything else in the Bible. So what have we tried to do here? Okay, let's just stop before we go here. And what do we, what's the big question we have to fear? Whatever this we do with this verse what do we have to establish before we even get to this verse? It's very simple. We've been working on it now for two weeks. Okay, all we need to do is take a step back and say, did God make promises to Israel? What promises did he make to them? Look at each promise and then ask ourselves, is that, was the promise fulfilled? If not, did it get sent to someone Else, and if it got sent to someone else, does that not destroy Paul's entire argument in chapter 8 about election? Hey, God elected Israel and then turned on them. Okay, well, that would be a major problem, right? So, what are we? We're going through the promises because if we can establish that there's all these promises that have never been fulfilled, then whatever we do with Romans 9, we still are stuck with this problem. Does, that, does everybody understand? See, when you come to a passage that's complicated, just take a step back and go, okay, what do I know? God made promises to Israel. Everyone should say, a lot of them have never been fulfilled. Now, what do we do? Well, if I rip them from them and give them to me, then what's the point of me getting them? Because God will just rip them from me and give them to someone else because I'm far more unfaithful than Israel ever was. That destroys Paul's entire argument in the book. Right. Right. Well, but the point is, even if he gave us different promises, we couldn't trust to keep the promises if Israel couldn't keep the promises, right? Because, I mean, that, that, that's the whole, that, it just destroys the whole character of God. So we've made, we started looking at all the promises. We've looked at a bunch, right? We haven't made it too far. What's the first one we looked at? We, and I'll describe the first grouping of verses. Numerous Old Testament predictions which treat of a repentance and restor- restoration of Israel and eschatological times, which is distinct and separate from that which followed the Babylonian captivity. I'll state it this way. The first group gives predictions of repentance and restoration of Israel that are different from the return from Babylonian captivity. And what are the verses we looked at to demonstrate this? Hosea 3, 4 through 5, Ezekiel 37, 11 through 20. In fact, we just kind of looked at the whole chapter of Ezekiel 37. There was, no, there was no problem with that. We made it very clear, yes? Why? What was the dead giveaway? That they're going to be joined together north and south. And clearly it uses the terms to show the, distinct, the uh, divided kingdom, right? You just got to go absolutely crazy with that. All right, then number two. The perpetuity of the nation of Israel in spite of repeated apostasies and restorations after divine chastening. In other words, there's promise after promise that Israel was going to survive and be kept in spite of their repeated apostasies. And what verses did we look to prove this? Leviticus 26, 44 through 45. Numbers chapter 23, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 46. And Amos chapter 9, 8 through 11. Did we make it through all of those? Okay, good. That brings us today to the third one, and we're not going to get very far. Remember, I've got 11 groupings here. 
11. And that, I don't even know if that even covers everything. That's why this, that's why this, this argument just makes me so angry. You've got like hundreds of verses. I'd be like, I don't care about all 100. Well, you've got to care about them because they're here. So where do you think this one's going to take us? Where? The, well, obviously it's going to take us to the Bible. Okay. Oh, revival. No, it's going to take us to Isaiah. That's, I, I, was, I was trying to see which book you think it was going to take us to. All right. But that's okay. Uh, it may deal with revival. We'll see. Um, Isaiah. Well, I'm not going to give you a name yet for this one. Right? We're going to figure this one out. Because my paragraph here is long. Okay? Right? There, there, put it this way. There was no way to, there's not an easy way to summarize these. Okay? But, well, let's just put it right now for Isaiah 11. Everybody ready? We have 16 verses to work through. Okay, here we go. Thinking caps on. Right, Isaiah 11. All right, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Right, now let's stop right here. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. What do you know about these two verses? Are we sure? Okay. Do you have any cross-references? Do what? Okay, what does Revelation 19, 11 say that would connect you to Isaiah 11, 1 through 2? Okay. Well, how good are previous discussions on current studies? Zero. How do I say that all the time? What good are your old notes when we study it today? No good. They're not even accepted. They're... Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, uh, you can use every tool that you have available to you to see what cross-references may reference it in the New Testament. Okay. Okay. A New Testament cross-reference would probably be extremely helpful. Right. Okay, Revelation 5.5. Has the root of David? Okay, and what does it say? What, 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 what does Revelation 5 5 do with this? Remember, there's a book. Nobody can open it. Everybody's really sad. Okay, and, and, and so we know that there are no Christians in heaven because nobody would be sad that the books couldn't be opened. Okay, I'm making a joke there. Okay, right? All right, but, but someone, there's only one person in heaven sad that the book can't be opened. But so, and the book is finally open, and the person who opens the book is identified as the root of David. Okay. The lamb. Okay, we, we're getting a pretty good idea that the one who can open the book is Jesus, right? I think we're pretty good. Now, how does that refer back to Isaiah 11? Okay, the root of David being the branch. Okay. Stem of Jesse. Okay. All right, indicating that this could possibly be a reference to Jesus. Okay, what else? Do we have any other cross-references? Romans 15, 12. Okay, Romans 15, 12. What is Romans 15, 12? I'm going to read this one because I'm not familiar with this one at the top of my head. So I knew the Revelation one, but Romans 15, 12. Okay, now this is a quote from Isaiah, right? Uh, verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, O ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, speaking of Isaiah, saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. Right, Uh, I guess they're borrowing from the root of Jesse, right? And that's obviously we believe that's referring to whom? Jesus. Okay. Please note, Gentiles are offered as distinct, obviously from Israel there, which is interesting. Okay. All right. What do we have? Any other cross references? All right. What do you have from verse two? Uh, Luke three. That's the one I was hoping someone. I think this is the one. I think I was hoping someone would know. Luke three. What? 22? You said Luke 3, 22? Are you sure? Okay. 
verse 22. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay? On the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay. Okay. Well, if, you, if we go down, the genealogy could help. But I see what she's doing. That in uh, verse 2, it talks about, and, and, and Isaiah 11, 2, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And here, speaking of Jesus after he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily shape upon him. Okay, so I see that. All right. Someone said Acts. Acts 13. Of which? Okay, Acts 13. All right, we can go to verse 22 is what everyone is saying. All right, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall fulfill my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. All right. So this is clearly, I think we can say that we have enough here. There's, I think there's another cross-reference that I'm thinking of, but we won't go there. Um, clearly, we would say this points to Jesus. Now, why is that significant? What is significant about this? Okay, how do you interpret this promise? Thank you, okay, that this is the promise of Jesus. Was Jesus spiritual or literal? Literal. Did Jesus represent something else? Jesus was Jesus. Did the Spirit actually ascend upon him? Yes. How was it fulfilled? Literally. I, I cannot stress this enough because this is the thing that drives me crazy is someone will be in Isaiah and this is what we'll do. There'll be three verses in the exact same chapter and guess how they will interpret them? Literal. And then the next four verses, guess what they will do? Spiritual. And you're just like, wait, how? What is your hermeneutical system? Well, my hermeneutical system is I interpret it any way I please. Okay, that's what they should say. Well, if you want to do the interpret it any way you please uh, way of doing hermeneutics, then I'm going to interpret it any way I please, and you're wrong. Okay, there, there you go. I mean, everyone can just play that game. That's not the way it works. All right, so we have something very literal. Agreed? All right. So I just I wanted to take the time to try to establish that all of that was just to establish this point that we're going to the New Testament to find a real person who fulfills this. And then we have someone who who sees the spirit literally descending. So therefore, we're establishing our hermeneutic. Yes. All right. That that's why we spent the time doing that. Okay. what happens in verse three? And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and within the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. All right, what, we have a problem here. What, what's the problem here? Would you agree that all of that has occurred? All right. Now, what, how, so now guess what? How is it going to be fulfilled? Well, your argument would have to be that it's going to be fulfilled what? Some, in some form of a literal way, because obviously Jesus was a literal person. Now, what's supposed to occur? What is he supposed to do? Okay. Okay, so there's going to be destruction of the wicked. Now, obviously, there's some figurative language here, but clearly, we believe the destruction of the wicked is going to be what? Literal, right? Now, the idea of a rod, does that appear anywhere in the New Testament speaking of Jesus? Where? Find something in the New Testament that would speak of Jesus and, and, and connection with a rod. Anywhere. You can just look up the word rod if you need to. Look for how it shows up in the New Testament. New Testament. What do you find? 
I know you're like, man, I don't come to church to do this work. Yes, you do. Okay. Or you could just sit there and not do anything. Okay. Anybody? Anything in the New Testament? Anything in the New Testament? Anything in the New Testament? That, that's, I'll take anything at this point since I'm right now I'm getting silence. Okay. Oh, we have revelation. Okay, good. What is it? That's revelation what? Two? Two tw- okay, what's, what's, who's it speaking of? Okay, it's a letter to the church. Okay, which church? Thyatira, okay. Who's it talking about? Does anybody know? Anybody? Do, do we need context? I think Bobby has the one that I'm looking for, but okay. I'm waiting for someone to see. Okay. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Who's going to be ruling with a rod of iron? Do what? Okay, let's do this. Let's throw this one out because obviously nobody knows what to do with it. All right? So we're not going to... Look, this is the key. When you're doing a cross-reference and you get to a cross-reference, you're like, well, um, I... Maybe, uh, it could be, uh, that's a pretty good idea. Don't use it. Good idea? Now, I could sit here and try to work us through it, and then we'd have to expound this, but I'm just saying, I want you to learn that principle. Don't, just because people do this all the time, especially when they do chapter summary methods, right? They'll just say, oh, it uses the same word and list it as a cross-reference. And then I go back to them and go, why did you include that as a cross-reference? Uh, well, uh, um, it's got the same word. That's not cross-referencing everyone. Does everybody understand? You've got to cross-reference something that helps you understand, right? So, what else do we have? Could be. Now, we could go back to Psalm 2, and we could try to build from there. But let's see if we find anything better that's just easier, so we don't have to spend that time doing that. I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying the reference can't work, but I'm saying if you look at it and you don't have a clue, you can't write it down until you figure it out, okay? And we don't have time to go through it. So let's see, do we have anything else that's easier? Oh, we have Revelation 19. Okay, now we may be getting somewhere, okay? Revelation 19, maybe. What happens in Revelation 19? And out of his mouth goeth a, a sharp sword, that, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. Who is that coming back? Right? And what's his name? Okay. Does it, anything else to identify him there in Revelation 19? I called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Was with God. All right, so we would say that this is who coming back? Christ. He's coming back to judge. Do we believe the coming back and judging is literal? All right. Is, now, we understand figurative speech is being used here, but sword and rod is used to do what? What is he going to do here in Revelation 19? Is he going to smite the wicked? He's going to smite and rule. He's going to smite. There's going to be destruction and there's going to be ruling. Is it a true? Now, if it's a true. Now, and it's so weird. What I love is people are like, yes, the judgment is literal. The ruling isn't. Because then they reject the, uh, the millennial kingdom. Well, what, how can you? Ju- if, if he's going to destroy everyone, then who's he going to be ruling? Unless you now put the ruling in a spiritual. You see, it just goes crazy. But this is a literal coming back and a literal judgment. Would everyone agree that they're, I mean, if you don't believe in they're literal, I don't, I'm just, I'm done. I, I don't even know what to tell you anymore. Okay. Right. They're literal. Yes. So that, why would that argue back in Isaiah? That this is pointing to literal things. Yes. All right. Go back to Isaiah and we could read more of Revelation 19. You get the idea. 
Okay. You see why I'm spending the time doing this? Okay. What am I trying to establish? Literal hermeneutic. All right. Now, starting verse 6. What happens in verse 6? The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. All right, what do we do with verse 6? Okay, do what? <laughs> okay, so, do what? Okay, what do we do with verse 6? Is verse 6 referenced anywhere in the New Testament? You're going to get tired of me asking that question, but I'm going to keep asking that question over and over and over and over again. Is there any is direct uh, cross-reference? Okay. Nobody's coming up with one? Okay. All right. All right. That's fine. If you don't find one, that's okay. All right, so let's go, but just go back to Isaiah 11 then. That's okay. If you don't have one immediately, that's fine. We'll work through this systematically. All right, so what's going on in verse 6? There is figurative language. There's no question about it. All right, but again, make this very, figurative language does not deny a literal fulfillment of some sort, right? Figurative language is used to describe the coming of Jesus, but it's a literal coming. Yes? Okay, just make sure we understand that. So, but what do we need? We need some kind of fulfill, fulfillment. What's supposed to happen? Some, uh, some clearly supernatural peace that we can't even comprehend, right? Why? How do we know that? Because the language uses describing what? A lion and a lamb hanging out with each other. That typically doesn't happen unless the lamb is lying down in the belly of the lion because he's usually going to eat it, right? Okay? So, that's interesting, right? Some kind of peace. Clearly, the, the, previous, pass, the previous verse describes all the wicked being judged and destroyed, right? So, clearly something's going on here. And then what else is interesting? Led by a little child. That's kind of odd. Right? Now, you see why I was hoping for a New Testament reference? Okay? See if we could immediately connect this to Jesus. But okay. Right? So, can we argue that this seems the world has never experienced anything quite like that? Agreed? We may try to find some historical fulfillment. Clearly not everything here has been historically fulfilled. Jesus hasn't come and judged everyone, smote the whole... There's clearly things here that have not been fulfilled, right? So then you have this time of peace. What happens in verse 7? The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lions shall eat straw like the ox. That's a complete removal of what? The lion is no longer trying to kill anything. Okay, this is a whole type of, of peace that's, that's hard to comprehend. All right, what happens next? The sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a pretty strong description, yes? What's going to happen? The whole earth is going to be filled with what? The knowledge of God. No one's going to hurt anyone. Has anything like this ever happened in the history of humankind? Verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So who's going to be somehow... a, a Arise up here and everyone's going to be turning to him? Root of Jesse, which we've identified as being Jesus. Now, is this literally going to happen or not? Well, some will say no. They say it happens in the church, but then that even becomes major problematic, okay, because, well, we have all the other issues in front of it, but okay. Put it this way. I've yet to see a church where there's that kind of peace. 
If you go to Matthew Henry, I guarantee he's going to throw it in. It's going to be the church. But churches have been dividing for 2,000 years. We have a hard enough time getting through a sermon without disagreement, right? Okay, so I mean, come on. I mean, that, it, it doesn't work that way, yes? Right, so what, what happens next? And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand upon the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from uh, uh, Shinar and from Hemoth, Hemoth and from the islands of the sea. So what's getting ready to happen here? A regathering. A regathering of whom? Would it be Israel? He's already mentioned Gentiles separately, yes? Isn't that an interesting uh, development? The Gentiles and Israel and Israel is separated. If it's the church, why would you separate the two? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just trying to play along right now, okay? All right. So I'm just saying, so even right there, I'm starting to go, something's getting ready to happen here. There's some regathering. All right, now what happens in verse 12? Yeah, okay, and, and if we, we, we have all the people mentioned 11, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. What is that once again? What's the, what's the significance of mentioning Judah and Ephraim no longer at war with each other? Exactly. What is this? The northern and the southern kingdom are back together. That, I cannot stress that enough. Why is that so significant in looking at these passages? It never happened. It never happened. Okay, look, this is like, this is not even, like this should not even be used in a hermeneutics class because it's too easy. Like, if I'm a hermeneutics teacher, I would say, no, 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 we're going to go to difficult passages. Because once it does that, all the arguments are over. Once you have Israel and Judah coming back together, immediately, what do I know? It never happened. Can I make that the church? Makes no sense. Because now you're having terms like Ephraim and Judah to describe the church. That's ridiculous. Not only that, the Gentiles are mentioned separately in the verses preceding it. Not only that, the preceding verses we've already established have to be literal or Jesus is not literal. So if that preceding verses are literal, then what has to, be, what has to literally occur? A regathering and uniting of north and south. Has it happened? Now, what's your options? God lied. The Bible's not true. I mean, it is an option. A lot of people question the Bible about Israel. You can see why. What would be a second option? Hasn't happened yet. So it's got to happen somewhere, somehow. Number three, it's the church, which is what uh, many will do. It's the church. And that doesn't even bother to explain it. That's one of the great things about being an amillennialist. You don't have to explain it. You don't even have to justify your hermeneutic. You just say, it's Israel. Or, or, I mean, it's the church. And then you're just, you're good to go. What happens in the next verse? What verse we just stop in? Verse 12? Oh, no, verse 13. Verse 14. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Amnon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. Uh, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, shall smite it in the seven streams, and make them go over dry shod. And, and there shall be a highway for them. The remnant of the people will should be left. And Assyria, like as it was to Israel in that day, he shall come up out of the land of Egypt. Basically, referring, basically, what is this describing? Destruction of enemies 
and what? They're going to have basically a highway that they can just come in, a way to bring them all back. How about chapter 12? How about chapter 12? And in that day, thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, that anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done ex- excellent things, and he is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, Thou inhabitants of Zion, great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Where is, where is God? In the midst of whom? Well, Holy One of Israel, God is in the midst of them. I'm telling you, that hasn't happened. Anybody want to go find God in the midst of Israel today? No. Can you even go to the temple? Well, there's nothing there except a mosque. Okay, right? You can't get to the temple, right? So we, we see, we see. Now, this is how this this section would be described. Ready? This is an Old Testament prophecy, and this is how some would describe it: unmistakable and utterly unambiguous language predicts a national restoration of Israel, and yet future messianic times, because Jesus is connected with this, right? Well, did it happen in his first coming? And if you think about it, it really kind of describes his first and second coming, does it not? The first coming, he's the root of, of, of Jesse, right? The spirit will be upon him. There's the first coming. Then what happens? He's going to smite the whole earth, right? That's Revelation 19. There's the second coming. And then after it describes his first and second coming, what follows after that? Peace, restoration of Israel, all of these things, which we know did not occur in the first coming. In fact, even in the chronology, it happens after his second coming in some way, shape, or form, if you want to put it in a a very strict uh, chronological order. They go on to say this. um, An Old Testament prophecy, which is unmistakable, utterly unambiguous language, predicts a national restoration of Israel and a yet future messianic time. Verse 6 to 9 following described conditions and that final kingdom of earth history. They would point this to the millennial kingdom. It is a time of universal peace, prosperity among among all of God's creatures. Verse 10, as the people of the earth shall seek Christ in that day, something, by the way, which can never and will never take place during this present age. It hasn't, it will not, unless something dramatically occurs. And what would have dramatically occur for all that to happen? The return of Christ. And that's how come when you read Revelation 19, what happens? Revelation 19, Christ comes, right? What happens in the very next chapter? Go ahead and look at it. Revelation 20. A new heaven and new earth in chapter 20? Okay, I think you just jumped way. You jumped a thousand years. Okay. Okay. Satan is bound? Well, that would be a, a, a very important part if you want peace. Beginning of Revelation 20. I have a thousand years. Someone keeps getting the thousand years. What happens he says about the thousand years? What, what's said there about the thousand years? Before, before it's over. Just the setting up the thousand years. What is said? Is anything specific said? Satan is bound. Okay, so Satan is bound for a thousand years. All millennialists believe he's bound right now, which, may, again, makes absolutely no stinking sense, but okay. After that, he's going to be loose. Does it say something about thrones? 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 
So you have Christ living and reigning for a thousand years and thrones are set up. So there's judgment, there's justice, Satan is bound. That's going to be a sense of peace. You have something completely radically different that's never happened. Now, you have two choices with Revelation 20. What are your two choices with Revelation 20? What are your two choices with Revelation 20? Oh, you got three choices. You got three choices. It's a lie. Not going to happen. Or, number two, it's going on right now. You're living in it. That's the amillennial view. Okay? Welcome to the millennial. I'm glad you love it. Satan is bound. You don't have to worry about him. Everything's great, isn't it? It's a great time. And a great time in the millennium. I can't believe how wonderful it is. Right? Okay. My question is, well, Israel, we're Israel. Remember, in, in the amillennial view, we're Israel. Okay? But here's what blows my mind. If I look at the state of the world today in the millennial kingdom, how is it so drastically different before the millennial kingdom was established. Do you see anything different? Go, read the Old Testament. Do you see anything different between the times that we live now? Do we have war? Well, remember, we're Israel in the millennial view. Israel doesn't exist in the millennial view. Okay? We're, but we're in the millennial kingdom. I just want you to know that that is complete, like, I, that is, now, right now, we're in the millennial kingdom. Yeah, but they don't believe the thousand is literal. Israel's not literal. The thousand is not literal. Satan is bound. Okay. But Satan is literal, but he, and he's literally bound. He's literally bound. The whole thing. Began, but my thing is, all you have to do is compare before Christ and look at the world, look at it after, and you say the millennial kingdom does absolutely nothing. If that's true, right? But I'm just saying that's the view. I, I, you're in the millennial. I don't. I can't buy that. I can't buy that. that, that that's. I mean, what a ripoff. I mean, really, what a ripoff. And then, how do we understand Peter saying Satan roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? Yeah, because Satan is not even here, and all the righteous have been destroyed. I mean, all the unrighteous have been destroyed. So I don't even know how there's sin in the world. And Christ is ruling and reigning. I mean, the whole thing just becomes majorly problematic. But okay, I get, I get that idea, all right? So you, you see where the problem is. So now they go on. Let me read this all again. Okay, uh, well, we've already read that. All right, so let's go do one more. It's 12.03. Let's do one more. All right, so we have, we've looked at Hosea 3, 4 through 5. You should have the, a list of these scriptures down. Hosea 3, 4 through 5, Ezekiel 37, basically the whole chapter. Leviticus 26, 44 through 45, Numbers 23, 9, Jeremiah 30, you can just put the whole chapter, Jeremiah 46, uh, uh, 27 through 28, Amos chapter 9, 8 through 11, all right? Then Isaiah 11 to chapter 12, verse 6, all right? Basically those two chapters, all right? And they say that this is unmistakable and utterly unambiguous language. And I, I, I don't know how, to me it's pretty clear, I'm not saying it makes everything simple, but I mean, if you throw it out, you're left with more confusion than than do so. So the next one is back to the book of Amos. Someone want to find it really quick? Book of Amos? There's a new grouping, new grouping, new grouping. Book of Amos. Find it really quick. If someone finds it before me, say amen. All right, here we go. I've got it. Amos chapter 9. Go to chapter 9. Okay, here we go. We're getting ready to have a controversy because me and Sarah seems to believe that the words forever and no more means forever and no more, even though everyone else seems to disagree with us. Okay, here we go. Isaiah, or Isaiah. Amos chapter 9, starting at verse 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Right? What does that seem to be describing there in verse 13? As fast as you can plow, you're going to be reaping. Does everybody see that there's usually a time period between those two things? Okay? And then the treader of grapes with him that sow... And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Right? Seeming to talk about a, a complete, like, 
change of everything. This is going to be something like amazing to see, right? I mean, basically, you're going to have plenty of everything. Agreed? And then what happens in verse 14? And I'll bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the waters thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And here's the very key verse, verse 15, because some people say, like, that happened when they came back from Babylonian captivity. Well, first of all, that's a lot of, I would love to see that when they came back from Babylonian captivity, that as fast as they could plant something, it grew. Okay. Right? And they'll say, well, that's figurative language. Okay. Well, then did they, did coming back from Babylonian captivity, was that literal? Well, the, they literally came back from Babylonian captivity, but it wasn't literally as good as it was promised. Okay, like, uh, you see where this just starts falling apart? But what happens in the next verse? I'm going to plant them upon there. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I gave them, saith the Lord thy God. Now, I can go full all-millennial here. Land doesn't mean land. Israel doesn't mean Israel. So what, what, how do I interpret verse 15? I, I, I mean, I, can, I had to write papers on this stuff. I had to write papers for school on this. I, did, I had to write paper after paper from the all-mill position. I know the all-mill position, okay? I've probably written more papers on it than I care to remember, okay? So what, what happens here? How would we interpret it from an Amil position? The church. Land land, land doesn't mean land. Israel doesn't mean Israel. We're the church and we will never be uprooted. But Israel, Israel, they're garbage. They're done. Which then you're like, well, wait a minute. Why is Paul mentioning Israel in 9, 10, and 11? Because what he would be arguing is don't trust your salvation because Israel lost theirs. It would destroy his entire argument of the book. And how did chapter 8 end? Nothing Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I'm going to prove this to you by pointing you to Israel who got separated from God and replaced. But you see that that destroys the entire argument of the book. 9, 10, and 11 is great news. God promised that what's going to happen to Israel one day? He's going to regather them. Give them the land that they were promised. And they're not going to ever be uprooted. Has that ever happened? Do they have the land today? They don't even have a fraction of a fraction. Okay, I don't even, what's smaller than a fraction of a fraction of a fraction? They got a little, little piece of, Taylor County is probably bigger. Okay, a little nothing. And what's constantly happening? Either they've got to give up land or try to take back land. It's struggle, struggle, struggle. And they didn't even have that till 1948. From 70 AD to 1948. In fact, even in 70 AD, they didn't actually have the land. They were under Roman control. And they share it now with the Palestinians. And even the holy city of Jerusalem is divided into three sections. Christian, Islam, and Jewish. So, so when did they get it? And when they came from Babylonian captivity, they were not, they didn't keep the land because they were, it was destroyed, everything was destroyed. So like, that verse means nothing. So like I'll say, well, it's not literal. Then just forget the whole Bible, man. The whole thing makes no sense. Everybody, I mean, these verses get more and more clear. So this is, this is how uh, they, uh, this speaks of it. The scripture speaks of a restoration of Israel, which will be absolute and permanent. That's pretty easy to read, right? Now, we'll have to stop there. Once again, why are we doing this? Because what does this establish? It's established God made promises to Israel. If God keeps those promises to Israel... What does that tell you? He's going to keep the promises to you. Chapter 8 ends with some pretty big... Go back to chapter 8 really quick. Just really quick. Everybody look at the end of Romans 8. Just really quick. What are some of those wonderful promises at the end of 8? Nothing is going to separate me from the love of God. Not a thing. 
He mentions everything you can imagine. Everything. Including death. Everything is mentioned. Right? Is that the last verse there? Is it a little bit above that that says we're more, more, is more than conquerors? We're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate it from the love of God. Do you believe that promise is literal? I hope you do. Right? Because if you don't, then you don't know when. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, including me. Awesome. Okay, now, Paul's like, okay, guys, stop. Now, let's talk about Israel. And I want you to know about Israel because Israel's not really Israel. But Paul, so you're telling me that Israel didn't get the promises? And Israel, well, then that means I can't, keep, I can't trust the promises. But if Israel keeps the promises, do we know that Israel sinned? Do we know that Israel messed up? Israel wasn't faithful? But if we find out that God is faithful and God keeps all of his promises... Then 9, 10, and 11 is the most amazing three chapters that you could ever read because by the time you're done, you're like, whoa, God is faithful to a bunch of people who weren't very faithful. So the only way for me to demonstrate his faithfulness is to go show you all the promises. When we, and every one of these passages, they're clear promises, right? I mean, there's no way to get around it. What can we say about every promise that we've looked at? Hasn't been fulfilled. So then what does that tell me? That it will be. Now look, if you want to say, what's your system of eschatology? God keeps his promises. That's my eschatology. I don't care what you call it. Okay? He keeps his promises. And that's my hope because he's going to keep promises to me. I hope he keeps the promises to me, right? Because if he doesn't, then my election is not. Election means nothing. My calling, my election, my predestination, my justification, all of it is useless. God called Israel. God chose Israel. Well, if, if the calling and electing of Israel isn't permanent, then the calling and election of me isn't permanent. So when you want to throw out Israel, what you want to do is throw out the doctrine of eternal security of the believer, throw out the the promises of God, and you make God a liar. All because you don't like Israel. I mean, that just seems like a weird hermeneutic to take. Now, why do you think amillennialism is so attractive to so many, especially in modern times? Why do you think... Why do you think it was popular or so attractive in early times? And why do you think it's had somewhat of a resurgence in later times? What would be its reasons for its early acceptance? There's no Israel, okay? And so, so you're, you're studying the Bible and, every, and so, you know, some little kid goes, who's Israel? Oh, well, there were these people and, well, they messed up. And so God got is finished with them. Okay, that makes it that makes it easy, right? Oh well, I look, I I agree, but I'm just saying that it just makes it simple, right? So look, what I, what do I always say about Christians? Christians like simplicity over truth. That's simple, because how in the world are you going to figure out where Israel's going to fit in if you're living in three, four hundred, five hundred A.D. I mean, you're probably, you're, you're probably still learning in history class about how bad 70 AD was, right? That's why in Matthew 24, I'm making everyone read Josephus on, on, for our Bible study exercise, why I'm having everyone read Josephus, because he describes how bad it was, right? They're probably like, man, that was bad. God was really obviously ticked off at them, okay? Man, it was, it was, it was horrible to be them, okay? Right? So you can see why. Now, why do you think in modern times a lot of people are like, oh, millennialism, and they'll, they'll lose their mind if you, don't, if you deny it? What do you think? Because what have we had in the world of biblical prophecy? Especially going from, say, the late 1800s all the way up to now. We've had insanity in biblical prophecy, Right? Predictions, Jesus is coming back, this, 
all, prediction, 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 prediction. Anytime someone throws a rock in another country, rumors of war! It's a, Jesus is about to come back! I mean, it's like as soon as, you know, there's a, the wind blows at 60 miles an hour, there, uh, hurricane! It, Jesus is coming back! Just craziness, right? People with their YouTube videos and their crazy conspiracy theories thinking Jesus is coming back every 13 seconds, okay? Not even knowing how to read Matthew 24. They cle- I, I mean, yesterday in the Bible study exercise, I tried to demonstrate that once again. All the, here's signs of the end times. That's 70 AD where you learn how to read, right? So you get frustrated with it all, right? You're like, this is nuts. So for some people, and I will put me in this camp, when you're like, man, I want to study theology. I got to figure out justification. You're like, you know what? I'm not going to get into all of this nonsense, right? Because this is just craziness, right? Because everyone's arguing about this. You got, well, who's the Antichrist? And then this, and then this is going to happen. And then there's going to be a war. And then Russia's going to do this. And then China's going to do this. And it's going to evolve to Israel. It's going to evolve to uh, uh, Iraq. And it's going to evolve to Iran. In fact, I just saw an article right before we started about, oh, a war's coming and it's going to be Russia. It's, all, it's from Ezekiel 38 and they just go crazy. And you're just like, oh man, I, I don't want to be associated with any of that nonsense. So then you just like forget it, right? The ch- church, the, all those promises are for the church and just be done with it, right? And then you just, it's almost like just the default position so you don't have to deal with it, right? Just to, remember, I used to say all the time in the church, I'm not going to deal with eschatology until we're done with all the other 66 books, but then you get into some of these passages and you have to start dealing with eschatology, right? In fact, what, where I got, Jeremiah is the one that threw us all off because I'm like, wait a minute, I just made Israel and Judah to church and I didn't even realize this is not, an eschat- this is not eschatology. This is a different question. This is what kind of question? Hermeneutical question. Then I'm like, oh, forget my eschatology. I got to figure out my hermeneutic. Because now I'm not using a consistent hermeneutic. So I had to, but you can see why some were just like, in fact, many people who are all millennials say, I don't care about eschatology. I don't care about biblical prophecy. And I understand you just go to this default position because you don't want to be like the thief in the night people, the left behind people. You don't want to be like that. So, but the problem is, if you'll pay attention, you're, you're, you're making a hermeneutical claim. It's not a claim about eschatology. It's a claim about hermeneutics. And so when you start going through these passages and we start trying to apply our hermeneutic, then we were like, wait a minute. Now I may change, I have to change my eschatology. If I don't, I've got an inconsistent hermeneutic and that's going to destroy everything. Then that's how you back yourself into it. But you can see why some could just find it attractive. It seems, it seems cool and nice until you start asking some hard questions about it. And then you're like, oh boy, this is problematic. This is problematic. Because your hermeneutic becomes weird, and then you have you living in the millennial kingdom now. And if you think you're living in the millennial kingdom, I'm sorry, man, you're just... like, Look, there, there's no point in debating it. Yeah, I mean, this is as good as it gets. I mean, like at this point, I'm not going to debate you. Just You live in the millennial kingdom, and I'm glad that you think Satan is tied up. That's wonderful. That's great. Okay? And I'm glad all the wicked have been judged. That's wonderful. I'm glad Christ is, you know, you just, you just, you know, you can go so far with it that Christ came back in 70 AD. You can go full-blown preterist and Christ came back in 70 AD. There's not even a second coming. He's already come back, came back spiritually. I mean, you can go crazy. You can just take it. And so then you don't even have to worry about anything related to biblical prophecy. It's just all done. Israel's done. We replaced it. Christ came back in 70 AD spiritually. That's it. The end. We just live our lives and die. And then we go to heaven. I mean, you can go full-blown crazy with it if you want. But what I want you to know, there's craziness in which camps? All of them. So no matter how much you try to avoid the craziness, you end up with it. I mean, the school I had to write papers from in the all-millennial position was the Family Radio School of the Bible, Harold Camping, and he lost his absolute mind, and he was an all-millennialist. Next thing you know, he's, you know, the world's going to end in 1994, and then it's like crazy, and then the church is overcome by Satan. Well, I thought Satan was bound, and then like he just starts going crazy, and then next thing you know, if you don't leave, if you don't leave your church, you've taken the mark of the beast. So now the mark of the beast is membership in a local congregation, and you're like, what is going on? What has happened? And he came from a reformed perspective. And he ended up there. So craziness in the world of biblical prophecy can show up where? From every perspective. So what's the only way to protect you? A correct hermeneutic. So what's my eschatology? 
God's going to fulfill his promise. And why do I have to believe that? Because a, a hermeneutic that denies God will not keep his promise is a hermeneutic that really throws out everything. Does that make sense? All right. So it's about hermeneutics. It's not about eschatology. It's about hermeneutics, not eschatology. If you put it in that category, it's a lot easier to deal with. Then you don't even have to assign yourself a hermeneutic, uh, an eschatological system. You need a hermeneutical system. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. This is a very important concept. I hope that we would give it serious thought. I, I, I want us to get done with all of these verses, but if, but if we don't read them now, nobody's going to go do it on their own. So I'm hoping that we will look at all of these verses so that whatever struggle we find in chapter 9, 10, or 11 of Romans will have already been answered by understanding that God has made, that you've made promises to Israel and that we believe you're going to keep those promises because that's the hope that you will keep the promises you've made to us. Let us be grateful and thankful for those promises and forgive us when we take them for granted or show that we're ungrateful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,